Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, we're going to talk about the nuns. In this podcast, we'll discuss the adults under 30 who have issues with the existence of God. Today, we'll lead in with Psalm 73, and as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. So, with the nuns challenge as our primary focus, let's just dig right in. Thank you, Randy. I want to quote from an article from the USA Today, December 15th of last year, so it's only about a month or so ago, dealing with uh, those adults uh, under the age of 30, about a third of the adults under 30, who are called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning, as Randy said, they don't, um, when the forms they fill out for a census or whatever, what's your religious affiliation? None. That's what they put. Uh, some of these would be millennials. Other. Yeah, other. <laughs> and uh, uh, the other group would be what's called Generation Z. These are adults who are 24 years old and under. Here is the article. Quote, The coronavirus pandemic pushed Americans out of the pews and into their homes. But for much longer, U.S. adults have increasingly made the conscious decision to leave or forego organized religion. And the trend is showing no signs of slowing down. A new study from the Pew Research Center found about three in 10 American adults now self-identify as religiously unaffiliated, reinforcing the notion that Americans are becoming more secular in the 21st century. They are referred to as religious nuns, people who self-describe as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. And their numbers have been growing for some time. In 2007, only about 16% of Americans identified as religious nuns, but that percentage has almost doubled since, according to the Pew study, that's how it's going. So the, the current event is about the rise of those who say, where is God? What is the evidence for him? And this is, um, we have found, a trend or a pattern among the nuns. They are big on wanting evidence for God. Or if God exists, then, you know, can he know anything? Does he do anything? He's not doing much to help the world because the world's in a mess. And little on showing up to church. Yes. You know, they don't do that either. <laughs> and, and very little. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're a lot like um, the people that Asaph described in Psalm 73, verses 9 and 11. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Right. How can God know? Well, as we will see in this broadcast, God provides evidence, but the greatest evidence is God himself, mm. a personal experience with the creator and redeemer of the universe. Let's do a little background here first, just to get into this. Randy's going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, uh, Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice the importance of faith. Faith 
as the ESV also says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is very important. And then in verse 6, those who draw near to God must believe, for without faith it's impossible to please God. This is the essence of and the burden of what we're trying to explain in this broadcast. Where does this all come from? Um, verse uh, 6 that Randy read, I must believe that he exists or that he is. And that may sound like, well, I just acknowledge that you know, there's some kind of a God out there. That is not what's being said. This goes all the way back to Exodus 3.14, as Randy tells us. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I'm sorry, that makes me think of Popeye. Popeye. I, I, am, yeah. I, am, I am what I am. Uh, a, a, a poor imitation of the Almighty God. Right. Uh, of course, that is the conversation with Moses where Moses said, what's your name? Who shall I say is sending me? And we have this I am that I am, the to-be verb in the Hebrew language, just like we saw the, it's a to-be verb in Hebrews 11, verse 6, mm. that he is, he exists. Meaning what? That he is the self-existent, eternal spirit, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, um, holy and loving, who reveals himself accordingly. Mm. It's not a statement about mere existence. It's a statement of how he exists. We must believe that God exists. Oh, well, there is a God. Okay, I got that. No, that's not what they're saying. The whole book of Hebrews is dedicated to how God exists in all of his glory and wonder and redeeming power and creation and things of that sort. Um, and it's about who he is in this existence. We're not talking about Aristotle and the unmoved mover, which gets us nowhere near to the biblical God, uh, or the God of deists who said, God years ago wound things up like a clock and now it's just ticking off and he doesn't get involved with the affairs of planet Earth. Mm. We're talking about a God who is the fullness of absolute existence and all other existences depend on him. He is what he is. I am that I am. Now, what is a Christian expectation? For those rejecting evidence... God will prove himself if one seeks the God who is. And that's very important. You cannot seek the God who isn't because he's not there. There's only one God, and we got to seek the God who is. That's one of the things that I think a lot of people struggle with. You know, someone who is earnestly seeking God is going to find him. Mm -hmm. That's just true because that's who God is. He's going to reward the person who earnestly seeks him. Right, exactly. So, uh, as we said, for those rejecting evidence, what they have left then is know this truth. God will prove himself if, as Randy says, you seek the God who is. Uh, he exists as creator and redeemer of mankind. To seek some other God, though, is futile. Now, what do I mean by that? And why do I bring that up? Because the millennials and the uh, young people from Generation Z, this is their take on this. Well, well. If God exists, and why does he get rid of evil? Why is there so much horrible things happening on planet Earth every day? Why does he bring justice? Why does he bring right kind of living on this planet? And why does, why does he take care of this issue? And why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the answer is, bluntly, that's not who he is, and that's not the way he exists. Of course, he's working toward righteousness, justice, and all those things. Absolutely. However... That takes time, apparently. And you say, why? Because that's how God works. That's how he lays out his plans through the ages. We cannot seek another God and say, get it over now, because clearly that hasn't happened. 
Not going to happen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, according to his promise, and the word promise is big in this broadcast, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. All right. That's the key to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What's hoped for? A world one day where, in fact, yes, things are righteous and just and everything is as it should be. The conviction of things not seen. A promise is something we haven't seen the result of yet. It's mm -hmm. still in the development. We are believing it. We are believing it. Faith in God's promise of wondrous things to come. Now, waiting can be tough, as we'll see. Well, Tom, Tom Petty, for those of us that are, the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is yeah, the hardest that's, part. Yeah. That's right. And we won't back down. That's right. Yeah, we're going right. to right. keep on waiting. That's right. We wait because his word promises power to come. Now, here's an example, which you may think is odd, but really gets to the point of some of the things we've already said. Matthew 22, verses 29 through 30. The background for this is Jesus is being puzzled by the Sadducees. They say, you know, there was this woman and she had seven husbands. So when the resurrection comes, which Sadducees did not believe in, nor did they believe in the afterlife, whose uh, wife shall she be? And Jesus responds in his inimitable, blunt style to these people. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, so the next age, the next world, and the resurrection, going to be a different world, at least along those lines for sure. And note what he says. You are wrong because of two things, and these two things really are inseparable. You know neither the Word of God nor the power of God. You don't know the Scriptures. You don't know His power. Those things go to, together. For example, one of the things we've heard recently about these young people uh, and we did this thing on the lesbian and, and the gay movement, is that, uh, well, God loves everybody, so why can't he just change me? You know, and I'm a, uh, I'm a lesbian, why can't he accept that? That's a change, and God, God is involved in this. Uh, the problem with that is God's power isn't used that way because it goes according to Scripture. He has a plan. He follows his creation. Uh, his power will one day change the world, and righteousness will rule. But when we say the power, well, then... Why doesn't he just accept me like it is and just let that be the change? The problem is there's also scripture which tells us who he is. Who he is is who he created as creator, which is the two genders. So they go together, scripture and power. One day he will change it, but the change he's going to make <laughs> is not that there'll be uh, homosexuality in the next kingdom or the next age or the next world when the resurrection comes, but there'll be no marriage for these people who have been resurrected as we know it. That's a big change, mm -hmm. and God's power does that. So, one day righteousness will rule, but it's in his timing, not ours, because that's who he is. Recently, I had a conversation, uh, two different days in a row, uh, with uh, young adults under 30 discussing these very, very things. And one of the problems was this evidence, like we've discussed here concerning uh, Hebrews 1.6, you've got to have faith. Those uh, who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those um, who diligently seek him and because uh, without faith you cannot please God. Now, when we look at evidences for God and say, well, why do I take him on faith? Why can't we have evidences? 
Evidences, or what's called apologetics, are primarily for Christians for their assurance. For example, there's the five, five or four, I got them in four categories, arguments for the existence of God. Cosmological, which is basically cause and effect. The effect, the biggest effect is the universe. Mm. Well, then there must be a bigger cause to bring that effect to, to pass. There's the teleological, which is the argument from design. Things look like they've been put together in nature to work together, to cooperate. Ecology is what we call it. Ontological argument, that God's existence is so great, it has to be. And that's a long-involved argument from Mr. Anselm back in the 13th century. And the moral argument, of course, that there are things are obviously evil and good, and somebody says, well, but there's no God. Well, then how would you know what's evil and what's good? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the standard? Yeah. In other words, if there's no God, where does this come from? The sense that we've been violated when something evil happens to us or when something good happens to us that we rejoice. Where does that come from? Yeah. Is that just, if it, if it comes from nothing that's purposeful, then it, it, the whole thing's a fraud. Mm. Okay. So how important is this, that the evidences are first and foremost primarily for Christians? Now we're going to see, yes, for seekers, but right now the reason for evidences is to help People who already have faith move on their faith because, as we'll see, having faith is not easy. Living the life of faith is not easy. I think people under 30 have the wrong idea about Christians, at least Christians I know, in my experience, about believing God, that it's uh, all a bed of roses or something. In mm. Acts 1, first three verses, Luke tells us that after Jesus' suffering, his resurrection, uh, he spent 40 days with his apostles showing them with many convincing proofs, as the NIV says, that he was Jesus resurrected from the dead. He was with them for 40 days, showing them many convincing proofs. Why do they need that? Because for the task he was going to give them, they need to have that absolute assurance. Now, we'll, we'll say, well, why didn't he just go and show Caesar? You know? Why didn't he show this many convincing proofs to the powers that be, to the wise of the world, to the philosophers? Etc. 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 Because, and this is really important, the world has already refused the obvious evidence. Mm -hmm. The obvious evidence of creation, and we did a series of podcasts on creation. Creation is the support groundwork for everything that happens later in redemption. If you're not going to believe that evidence, it's sort of a waste of time mm -hmm. to deal with uh, Jesus showing himself to uh, either Augustus Caesar or whoever else it might be. Listen to this passage again from. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Exactly, exactly. And there are those times when even atheists have a moment where they think, well, it looks like there's a God. Yes, that impression, that perception needs to be followed. That's what's mm -hmm. called seeking God. So, but if you're going to refuse the obvious evidence, what's left? What's left is, well, seek the God who is then. That's, what you, that's where you're going to have to go. Because that's what we who are Christians are doing on a regular basis day to day seeking the God who is by faith. Listen to this from Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. There you go. That's a, that is a primary a declaration of how we live in the uh, wonderful book of Romans. We live by faith in the unseen, the gospel promise, which is God will save us. If we die, we go to heaven, and the world to come will be resurrected. We'll be serving him for ages and ages, be immortal and never die again. So that being the case, in this life, sometimes, many times, and in my opinion, too, too many times and too often, <laughs> living by faith is difficult. I'm, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Anybody out there want to seek God, we want you to. But let us, let us be honest up front. It's not easy. Um, listen to this short passage from Psalm 119. Psalm 119, by the way, goes on for you know, over 100 verses. But it is, it is one of the themes of this psalm is exactly what we get in this little middle section of verses 81 to 88. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. There you go. Lord, I'm, uh, I'm going blind here, looking for your promises. Where are they? I'm like a wineskin in the smoke, which means I'm dried up. There's no moisture left. Mm. I've cried. I've exuded. I've sweated. I got nothing left. I'm spent. I'm spent. And I need help. I need relief. Now, this is a fella who's a believer. Now, you say, well, it doesn't, doesn't sound like it, but here's the point. We're going to see he's still seeking. That's the key. You want something easy, you'll have to go someplace else to some other religion. It's not in Christianity. He's seeking the God who is. He knows God is. He knows that God is good. Therefore, he expects the breakthrough, but he's, he's not seen it yet. And this is part of the Christian life. We keep on persevering until that time we get that word from God. Well, Listen, here's a quote from Lee Strobel. We'll talk about him in a minute or two a little more, who was a seeker of the true God and came to be a Christian. Here's what he says. Only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. Oh, boy. So keep that in mind, anybody under 30 listening to this broadcast. We're not talking about something that's easy. But when you do it, it's the greatest thing on earth and the truth stays with you. Nothing worthwhile is ever easy. That's right, yeah. precisely. Refusing signs and evidences for some other sign, and this is typical of the, of the people I've talked to recently. Uh, no sign is good enough. They want the sign that they want to you know, put on God. You don't do that. Mm -hmm. God gives you opportunities. He gives you evidences, and he says, well, then seek me. But there is this problem of unbelief. Listen to this passage from Mark 8, 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. 
Yeah. They wanted a sign. He says, you know, how many miracles did Jesus do? How many times do you have to raise the dead? How many times do you heal people who are crippled in front of you? Take away their leprosy. Give them back their sight. How many times does that happen? Well, it's not enough. It's not enough. And to we who are Christians, it sounds ludicrous, but that is the way the world is. Um, here's another one that adds something more to it, but reestablishes what Mark says. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Sign of Jonah is, of course, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So the Son of Man will be uh, in the grave, in the tomb, you know, three days and three nights, and then come forth in resurrection. Why would he say, you only get that sign? Because it's the only one I can give you. And it's not going to do you any good until you are open to see it. To see it. Right now you're blinded. Here's how Paul, when he gets to, uh, to preach uh, his first missionary journey, this is the first sermon he's got in the, uh, in the book of Acts to convert people in the synagogue, uh, Jewish believers and Gentiles who attend there as well. And, but listen to one of the verses Paul uses. Just think of this being used in church today. Here we go. This is from Acts 13, verse 38 through 41. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So God's going to do a great work. That's a quote from Habakkuk, by the way, one of those great little prophets of three chapters in the Old Testament. And Paul quotes it here because he knows there are those there in that synagogue who are not going to get this. They're not going to see it. And he says, listen, people, and we're going to tell you, I'm going to tell you this wonderful thing that God has done in your day, but you're not going to, some of you are not going to believe it. The blinded people always miss the obvious. If you don't accept the basic truths, you can't move on to those which are redeeming. Here's a quote from Yuri Gagarin. Now, some people said, actually, Khrushchev came up with it and put it in Gagarin's mouth. Yuri Gagarin was the first astronaut or cosmonaut, I think they called him in Russia in those yeah. days, to go into space. He came back and he said, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. Of course, the, the philosophy and the stated religion of the old Soviet Union was no religion, no God. Um, and, of course, those of us who are Christians say, well, if you were looking for some guy in a ghost outfit hanging out, you know, next to the one of the planets, obviously no. Yeah. But as Paul says, the things that have been made speak clearly about a God who made them, if you just are open to it. Let's take a look at it this way. What does evidence do and what evidence cannot do? Think of this. If evolution was disproved tomorrow, and there's a possibility there's good arguments against evolution. What if finally, all of a sudden, there's a breakthrough, and it's clear that evolution is bogus? Will the world run to God? What if Noah's Ark is discovered? 
fully and completely, proving the flood of Genesis? What if the Shroud of Turin, by another scientific test, proves to be the real image of Christ? Will the world leap at any of these? No, it's not going to happen because the basic evidence has already been refused. Absolutely. So what's left? And that's why I tell people they want to spend a lot of time and money in doing things like finding Noah's Ark. And there's, there's good arguments for evolution against it, um, mostly to help we who are Christians understand it, it is bogus. But arguing people who are already convinced and not going to believe is sort of a waste of time. So what's left? Again, Hebrews 1.6, those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he exists in the way the Bible says he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here's a quote. This is good. And I came across this when I was doing research, and I remembered uh, reading about this back in the 70s when I was on a quest to find out if one could prove the existence of God. Mm. Now, I finally gave up on it. There's evidence. But if you want proof, and I was, what I was proofing is called 100% undeniable. No, God himself is that proof. Mm. You want that proof, you got to engage with the personal God. you got to seek him. Bertrand Russell, back in the last century, um, especially through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, was an outstanding philosopher, a genius, and one of the um, outstanding spokesmen against God. He wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Mm. And a brilliant man. He was once asked, what if you meet God, it was this meeting, and God asked you, why, uh, why don't you believe? Or let's, let's, uh, let's assume maybe you're, you're dead now and you're going to meet God. And God says, uh, Bertrand, why didn't you believe me? And this is his quote. He would say, because you didn't provide enough evidence. Uh-huh. Now, that's from a man who was a genius. Well, he's blind because there's plenty of evidence. But again, once you become a Christian, once you seek God and find out there is a God, you look back. And you see all those things that were marking your trail along the way, evidences, it's so clear. Yeah. It's so obvious. It's like at the end of a mystery, when it's explained who the murderer is, you go, ah, now obvious. I see the clues. Yeah. They were there all along. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is the way it is with God. Now, what's funny about this, getting back to my story, back in the 70s, I was reading in the writings of Bertrand Russell. And he was telling about his growing up. And I wanted to know this because, you know, he wrote in a book later on, Why I'm Not a Christian. And... um he studied with his brother, his older brother Frank, and his older brother Frank taught him math and all these things, especially Euclid geometry. And this is Bertrand Russell's own words, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, we came to study the axioms, and we had this one axiom of Euclid, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And I looked at my brother, Frank, and he says, okay, you got that? And he said, no. He said, where's the proof of that? How am I, so what? How do I know that? He says, why should I accept that? And he says, my brother got frustrated and he said, if you don't accept that, we cannot learn anything else that goes on in this book. <laughs> and I thought, Bertrand, you should have gone back to that one incident in your childhood. Yeah. Because if you don't accept God, there's no going any further. Right. If you do, you can go further in the book. You can yeah. go further along and see. Here's another quote. This is a good one from Augustine. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Mm. Yeah. Good psychology from Augustine way back. Way back then. Way back then, 1,800 years ago. So what would be the evidence that the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, 
would accept. How much evidence would be enough? And this is what I told to basically the two people I was talking with over a couple of days. I said, there's evidences, and they're good evidences, but you know, how much evidence do you need? How much is going to be enough? The greatest evidence is God himself. What you're looking for is God, and there's a way to get there. The Bible says, seek him and you'll find him, all right? You find God himself, he's greater than any evidence. Experience with God. A God that leaves the seeker blessed, that is, he rewards. There is a God, yes. And then you come to a crisis and the crossroads of what to do. Remember last broadcast, we had a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said at one point in his conversion experience, getting to know God, getting to see if there is a God, he said there was a time when I, I was offered a holy free choice, you know, mm. to, to come across. And if you're really seeking God, you will come to that. Here's a quote from William Lane Craig. I've read in him. He's an apologist, got a lot of books out on how to prove the existence of God from a believer's viewpoint. He says, if you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. And the answer is absolutely. We talked earlier, a quote from Lee Strobel uh, about how faith can only exist in a world that's uh, hard on faith. Uh, he was an atheist. And he was uh, basically an investigative journalist. That's how he made a living. His wife became a Christian. And so he said, hold it. I am a journalist that investigates things. I will investigate this. Because, you know, he had concerns. But because he was a good investigative journalist, he was open to what he was studying. All right? Prompted by the results of his investigation, he became a Christian at the age of 29. You say, how does that work? Well, I can't go through his whole life, but listen to this passage from John chapter 10, verse 37 through 39. This is how that works. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Notice the humility of Jesus. Even if you don't believe me, look at what I'm doing. Mm. Be open to that. And you will come back to believe in me if you do that. That's what Lee Strobel did. He looked at the claims of Jesus, the works, and said, yes, he is from the Father. He is the Son of God. So he was open to the God who is and was not opposing. The first step in seeking God is, I'm open. I'm open. And I have read other testimonies by other people who were atheists, who reached that point in their life, whether they were alcoholics or drug addicts or something else, who said that they had to be open because there's nothing left, but maybe there's a God. And they sought and they found God. Here's an Old Testament character, and he's good to use because he was a seeker. Job was seeking. If you read the book of Job, he's seeking all the way through that book to figure out, why am I being treated like this by God? You know, God is just not doing right by me. And you know, who can blame Job? Because he lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost his children. They all got killed. He had a bad day. He had a bad day. All he had left with his wife who said, you know, you ought to curse God and drop dead. So Job's in a hurt, and he's, he's seeking God, and he's full of questions. He wants answers, answers, answers for the situation he is. At the end of this, Job 42, after God has appeared to him, he's going to make a statement. But let's remember, he shows up in a storm. I think it's back in verse 38 and says, well, we're going to find out because Job repeats his words. But he takes him on a view and a trip of creation of all things. He goes to the animal world. For example, he uses the ostrich. He says, can you figure out the ostrich? He said, you know, big, old, awkward-looking bird, can't even fly, got wings, and they're, they're goofy, and uh, 
They stumble over their own eggs that they've laid and, and bust them open. And yet, when the ostrich goes to race a horse, he just leans back his head and laughs and passes the horse up. In that passage, he says, God did not give the ostrich wisdom nor understanding. Can you understand that? Can you understand how I put my... I, this is basically saying this is how I get joy and entertainment from the creation I put together. I love it. You'll never understand it, but you can enjoy it. Well, Job 42, after Job's seen all this, he comes to repentance. And this is from the message. This is like the way it's a paraphrase of the first six verses of Job 42. Job said to God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You ask, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly refusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand. From my own eyes and ears, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. So at the end, when God comes down and they have a personal conversation, Job is brought to, and the last verse says, I abhor myself and I repent in uh, sackcloth and ashes. Uh, alternative reading is, I comfort myself in the ashes, meaning either way, I repent, but I get great satisfaction. In other words, Job was satisfied. Mm. He was no longer going to argue about God and the God's ways. He understands now God knows what he's doing, even though I don't understand it. I'm satisfied. That's, that is the end of seeking God. When you come to a point, I acknowledge God. I acknowledge that God is God. I will never understand, and I will hurt many times, and I will cry out for help often, but God is God. Here again from C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, uh, Surprised by Joy, his spiritual autobiography, of all the struggles he had when he realized it looks like there is a God and he didn't like the idea of that. So the more he struggled, the more the evidences of God kept up. Because he was looking at the same time saying, yes, that looks like God. He said, then all of a sudden it was like this. I gave in and admitted that God was God. That's what this is about, seeking God. God and his word are inseparable. That must be understood. You seek the God who is, and who he is is laid out in the word of God, which helps us understand God to the point where we can have faith and trust his promises will in fact come to pass, though we cannot see the results of them. We live by faith. Mark 8, 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Because of me, Jesus, and the gospel, that is the promise that is in the gospel that he saves you, there is a heaven to be gained, there is a new world to come, there is resurrection and immortality and all those good things, but you cannot have one with the other. Many people want Jesus without the word of God. Mm. It won't work. And many people try to get the word of God to say things that Jesus would never approve of. It's Jesus and the word of God. It's the God who lives, who said, I am the great I am, and what he says about himself that are inseparable. Here's another example. We've got to trust in God's word, Hebrews 11, 7, 8, and 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Notice, promises to come. Things they didn't have as a reality. It wasn't a reality there. Reality was their faith in believing the promise would come to pass, that God would bring it to pass. Trust in God's word. And then, of course, trust in God himself. Again, this great passage. Let's hear it. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So no matter how many evidences you want or you may get, you still have to come to this place where you accept God as God. The evidences will always fall short because God is greater than his evidences. You've got to make that step and trust in the Lord. Therefore, faith involves seeking God and doing so throughout life. This is because we're always learning more about the God who is. Somebody might say, Goebel, have you found God? My answer would have to be yes, many times. <laughs> yeah. And every time it's a revelation and perhaps one day we'll have a podcast based on those experiences. But we must seek God, not as benefits. God is the greatest benefit. He is the great reward. And then come other rewards. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, these things will be added to you. In that context, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about uh, the needs that sustain our life, food, clothing, all those things like that. But there's also things to come in the next life, the resurrection life. Listen to the seeking now that we all must have as Christians, people of faith, in Romans 2, verses 6 through 7. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Those who by patience, you're waiting, uh, seek those things, glory, honor, immortality, all those things. Um, Yes, those are the things that matter. Who doesn't want to be immortal? Mm. Seeking God leads to that. It leads to glory. It leads to honor. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Right. Again, um, my wife and I in the last 30 years have averaged a move every four and a half years. But we are seeking for a place (laughs) where we'll never move from. Once we get there, we're there for, for good, for the duration. So we are seekers throughout life. Seekers, 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 continual seekers. Here's a quote from Augustine. Seek not to understand so that you may believe, but believe because you may understand. To understand the God who is, accepting God as he is, who he is, is difficult on earth and sometimes even in heaven. For those of you who think Christians really, they got faith so the injustices of life don't matter, Listen to this from Revelation chapter 6. The context is the opening of the scroll, which describes the end time events before Jesus comes back. And this is the fifth seal that's been opened. And all of a sudden, something very unusual happens. You get a vision of what's going on in heaven. Randy? 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Let that sink in for all of us. People who, uh, those of us who might be listening who don't have faith and those of us who do, these are the ones who were martyred. And I'm reading in the pages just yesterday, I read again in Sudan. Christians in the southern Sudan were killed and some 50 plus houses, buildings burned down by the terrorists. These people are now in heaven and they're still wanting answers. They're seeking, Lord, how long is this going to be before you put things right? This is a terrible injustice. This is not vengeance. But when people who are innocent are killed, there needs to be an accounting. And so they are upset. When, when's this going to stop? So they're told, wait a little longer. So much of the Christian life is that. The God who is says, wait, and we must have the patience. They're given a white robe, so they're blessed and rewarded and told to rest until the rest of those who are also going to be killed join their ranks. Mm. And Christians are dying across the globe, especially in the Eastern Hemisphere, uh, every day. So uh, we need what? Understanding of all things? No. We need to believe so we may understand. That's always the way to the God who is and his promises. And notice even there in heaven, it's still a promise, isn't it? Wait, and everything will be put right. Mm -hmm. Even to those who've come to heaven, uh, bloodied by their martyrdom. Let's close with a, a curious, quaint story, which is true, of a man named Zacchaeus, who's a seeker. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore fig tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is a great story. We don't have time for it, but in the preceding chapter, Luke 18, we have a rich young man who we're told elsewhere in uh, the gospel accounts is a uh, rich ruler. And he's enthusiastic. He comes up to Jesus, falls on his knees. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He sounds like a real good seeker. And Jesus says, well, what about the law? You, what's, uh, what's up with that in your life? Uh, you know, honor your mom and dad, and et cetera, et cetera. He says, I've done all those things since my youth. And Jesus says, well, you just lack one thing. Sell all you got, get rid of it, give your goods to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. The young man turned and went away sad. We're told his face fell because he had riches. He had money. So was he really seeking? The point is, seeking costs. It will cost. But 
you can manage the cost if you're seeking the God who is found in Jesus Christ. This is what Zacchaeus does. He also is rich. He's a tax collector. Everybody in the town knows he's rich. He's yeah. got plenty of money. And he hears Jesus is coming, and he wants, he wants just to see Jesus. There's the key. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. His mind is not worried about his money or anything else, and obviously he's done things wrong because he makes his confession about getting back with people and making reparations with him. But he wants to see Jesus. So there's an obstacle, though. He's short. So what does he do? He says, well, I guess I won't see him today because everyone's taller than me. No, he finds a tree. Finds a tree, goes way ahead where Jesus will be passing by, gets up on that tree, and all he wants to do is just see Jesus. He is just maybe obsessed with this. I don't know. But he's seeking. So what happens? Jesus comes, stops, looks up, and says, Zacchaeus, come down for I'm going to your house today. When I was a kid in chorus in church, we used to sing that. Did you have that song? Oh, yeah. yeah going to your house today. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, was a wee little man. man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So at the course of being at his house and the meal, the conversations they've been having, because Luke doesn't give us all the details, he stands up and he says, all right, I'm ready. I've been wrong. I've done people wrong. I'll repay back everything. I'll take care. I'll make every wrong right. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this man. Mm. His seeking results in a dramatic change. The reward is, of course, being blessed with Jesus, being there above all things. Now, note that God works with everybody in a particular way, if you're a seeker. Contrast, Enoch and Noah. Enoch, you know, we're told, walk with God, Genesis chapter 5, and then God took him, apparently up to heaven, although we have no more talk about Enoch in the rest of the, uh, the Bible. But he walked with God, and God took him, and he was not. Noah, chapter 6 of Genesis, we're told that he walked with God. And God says, listen, it's going to be a mess down here. Big flood, you've got to build a boat, it's going to take a long time. And he labored and labored and labored. Meanwhile, Enoch's up in heaven. <laughs> Chilling. Chilling. Watching. Yeah. Watching. So you, we never know how God will, because that's the way he is. He works in everybody's life and in a sense always the same, bringing us on to more things of faith to make us stronger and better people. But he works according to who we are. And that's what I told those uh, two young people I was talking with a while back, just a, a month or so ago. Uh, seek God. And this will happen. He will show himself to you, but I cannot predict how that will be because mm -hmm. God deals with everybody a little differently. Here's a great passage that illustrates this from John 21, verses 20 through 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the Lord's Supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Exactly. We need not to be saying, well, Jesus, you did this for this person. And Jesus is going to say, well, what's that to you? Yeah. I am the God who is. You cannot predict how I will respond in your life and have you do things. Everybody's going to be treated just a little bit differently. And there is a grand paradox here when we see this story of Zacchaeus in, in verse 10. Uh, I have come, says Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. Now, the story starts off, it looks like Zacchaeus is seeking. But here's the big surprise. Once we start seeking, we always find out 
God is already seeking us and has been for some time. And seeking the Lord, we find out he was seeking us, seeking us to let us know he loves us, wants us for his own. As scripture says, 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Indeed, we love him because he first loved us. Seek and you shall find. Well, thanks, Jim. We've got a lot to think about, and I'm sure that you might have questions and comments about it. And we'd love to hear those questions and comments from you. So please send your questions or comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your question or comment where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until next time, keep looking up.